1: I'm Pam Druckerman and this is Tell Me What You Really Think, where I sit down with innovators and change makers to talk about the role of the media in these unsettling and chaotic times we're living through. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Picardi about the vibe shift around influencers and the seismic changes happening in social media. Phil's best known for reinvigorating Teen Vogue from a brand all about teen beauty and fashion to a symbol of the resistance. He's created some of the most viral and influential content on the internet. And he's someone near and dear to my heart. Do you remember the first time we met or do you remember why we met?
0: No, I remember being in your office. I remember you had a fiddly fig tree that really needed some water. I think I remember burping by accident in the office too. I was like having a coffee. It was right before them, right?
1: That's my fill. He went on to run Out Magazine, and this year, Phil graduated from Harvard Divinity School. You can read more about his spiritual journey in his upcoming memoir, Is Jesus Kind of Hot? And now he's starting a new gig as chief marketing officer for the world's largest LGBT center in Los Angeles. And I'm proud to say I knew him when. Well, you know, I'm glad it's so memorable, because no, that wasn't the first time we met. The first time we met was at this (laughs) horrible... I won't say what it was, but let's just say it was an event in Florida. Let's just say it was an industry event of sorts, of which we ended up like sharing a car together on our way to a dinner. You were like all of, I don't know, you might have been like 21. I'm not even sure how old you were. But um, it was interesting because like literally in that short time between this horrible event and the dinner where we shared a car, I was super impressed by you because like in that, I think it was like a five block radius of time we were talking about the beauty industry and ultimately what was going on with influencers at that time. And you had a lot to say about what the marketing side was not doing right and ultimately how they'd think differently about reaching the youth, if you will. And obviously, I became a huge fan of yours when you started your real rise at Teen Vogue. And then that turned into the relationship that we built when you came into my office with my Yes, dying fig tree. Thank you for reminding me to talk to me about this amazing (laughs) idea that you had, which we will get into in a little bit. But anyways, I just wanted everyone to understand, like, all the reasons I adore you, and it makes sense that we would be here having this conversation right now. So, Thank you. But can you give our (laughs) listeners a primer on your work history? How did you get to the pinnacle of Teen Vogue's digital and social media rise? And, and before you do, I just want to give our listeners more context around social media at that time. So Facebook, I think was founded in 2004, but the idea of virality in social media as we know it didn't really happen until Twitter introduced the retweet in 2009. Facebook in the same year introduced the like button. Then it hit its first billion users in 2012, the year I think you graduated from NYU and came to Condé Nast. Now, is that all true? I feel like I got that all right.
0: That's good. Yeah, that's great.
1: So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to come to Teen Vogue during that time and what you were trying to change or what was actually changing
0: around you? Yeah, so I mean, I was part of Teen Vogue in different permutations of the brand. I I joined Teen Vogue at 18 as an intern and then I was in the beauty department with Eva Chen who actually now works at Meta and then basically after interning at GQ and Vogue and then doing a digital media startup I was invited back as an assistant beauty editor I was promoted really quickly to digital beauty editor, was poached by Refinery29 and then was poached back again to Teen Vogue. When I rejoined Teen Vogue I was 23 years old and was appointed the digital editorial director So, just a massive title and position for someone at that age to hold. And it was just a crucial time at the brand. I remember Fred Santarpia, the chief digital officer of Conde Nast, was like, look, you're at Refinery. They have their own team of engineers, like, they have a custom built website. You have all of this autonomy and freedom. You only have to write, you know, a story a day. You're coming here and that's not going to be our story. Right. And I said, yes, but, you know, the thing is, I know what it's going to take for Teen Vogue to be successful on digital and I'm willing to do whatever it takes and work however hard I need to to get there. So I had built a 45 page deck for Amy and Fred to review. That was basically all premised on the fact that we weren't giving teenage girls enough credit on the website. So the same kind of vigor and rigor that it took to like commission a cover story, I wanted to apply to the digital strategy. And so I proposed we launch a wellness initiative. We started covering reproductive justice, sexual education. I proposed that we started covering politics because Hillary Clinton was rumored to be running for president.
1: By the way, Amy Astley, when you said Amy, I just want people to know she was the OG original editor of Teen Vogue. Yes. And when I had her on my podcast last season, we were we were celebrating Teen Vogue's 18th birthday. And she gave you so much credit, by the way. I don't know if you ever listened to that episode, but she literally was like, Phil, 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 Phil. I'm like, okay, well, he's not here right now. We'll get back to him later. But (laughs) it was basically what I thought was so amazing at that time, and everyone had an opinion about it even then, was like how political Teen Vogue was getting. Because, you know, it was kind of launched to be this like little sister fashion brand, right? And all of a sudden, you guys were telling really hard-hitting stories. And I remember talking to you, at that time about, you know, the fact that like, listen, we're just reflecting what our audience is talking to us about. Right. So it's this idea. That's right. Right. And so I think that was such a big moment. And What do you think was the catapult moment for Teen Vogue in that moment when you were there? What was the story? Do you remember that really made the difference?
0: The story that put us on the national and, you know, spotlight and got us attention beyond just the ire of conservative media, which we had been receiving for quite a while before that, was Donald Trump is Gaslighting America, which was an op-ed written by Lauren Duca. I was the weekend editor at the time, so I was editing 10 stories a weekend on my phone. Basically, there was this report. That came out at the time from American intelligence that said that there was reason to believe that foreign governments were potentially manipulating technology and social media to influence the results of the 2016 presidential election. And Donald Trump kind of just responded with it like, who cares? Like, right, this is fake news. And I texted Lauren the Washington Post article about this story. And she said, you know what's so screwed up is that we can publish this. And like, whereas maybe 20, 30 years ago, this would be breaking, heart stopping, urgent news for every American to consider and would glue everyone to their TV sets. This now is just like a blip on the radar. Like we have completely stopped processing information at a pace that we can actually realize the gravity of what's happening to us. And she said, it's like we're just constantly being gaslit. Mm -hmm. and I was like that's great and she was like I'm gonna write this op-ed let me send it to you I edited it I think while I was in the line for checking out my grocery shopping at Trader Joe's and it was up on the internet and the next time I checked my phone you know it was basically the most Traffic we had ever received on our website in a single hour. Dan Rather had tweeted it. New York Times columnists were talking about it, and Lauren would later go on Tucker Carlson, much to my chagrin, and he would tell her that she should stick to writing about thigh high boots and not politics. And the rest was history.
1: And, and by the way, for for those of our listeners that don't know, I mean, I really think you know. Listen, I we knew you were talented before Teen Vogue, but I think that really catapulted you and and your name and your talents and and your willingness to take risks. And speaking of risks was the the moment that you decided you wanted to launch one of our most successful brands now, which is our LGBTQ plus brand, Them. And it's a brand that I'm really, really proud of. And I was really proud of you then because that was something that, you know, didn't exist for whatever it's worth. and, And certainly not at Condé, but not even when I think about what was going on outside of Condé and any sort of community brand that was really speaking to our community in a relevant way. And and, um, I just would love for a minute if you would talk a little bit about why that came about for you and what was burning inside of you that made you want to launch them.
0: Listen, I was at the time coming to like when I was thinking about this idea, I was hoping to move on from Teen Vogue at that point. And it wasn't that I didn't love Teen Vogue or the work we were doing or what we had built, but I was really feeling called to do something that felt even more personal. Mm -hmm. And when Anna asked me if I could launch anything, you know, I had nothing prepared for her, but I immediately started talking about where I thought the future of LGBTQ rights was going. I knew from Teen Vogue that this next generation of youth thinks very differently about sexuality and gender identity than we do. I saw that shift happening even in among our activist circles. And I realized that that very move, that very shift forward in our movement was going to be our political weakness in the Trump administration. So, I proposed this idea of a future and forward-thinking brand for the LGBTQ community because queer media was still kind of dominated by the marriage equality narrative that we were used to, and them was born. I was just, you know, I can't say how lucky I was to feel really listened to by all of you. Like, the day that we pitched them in the boardroom, I went into the bathroom on that like a scary executive floor at Condé Nast, and I just cried. It wasn't about the moment, really. It was about the fact that like I was talking about something that felt very ahead of the curve, and that people really took it seriously. People who were in that boardroom, who I didn't even know if we could count on, but who really like stood up and were like, "We really see why this matters." And to see what Sarah Luby Burke is doing now with them in the wake of over 200 pieces of anti-trans legislation, a don't-say-gay-bill, LGBTQ curriculum being wiped and banned from our schools, our public schools, you know, them is one of the most important brands to follow in the media world right now because it is the locus of where a lot of our kind of anti-equality legislation and anti-equality initiatives are happening.
1: Well, by the way, a real positive in social media is the fact that this is a brand that only exists because we were able to launch it in social media. And there's a community... Organically.
0: Orga- no aid.
1: No, nothing. We got nothing. But I mean, let me tell you nothing. something. This was a community that was starved for this brand and that had access to something they would not have had access to if it wasn't for this birth of social media and, and all the things that I think are, are positive. Now, listen... It's really interesting to watch how your career has evolved and, you know, all the things that kind of brought you to this point. And, you know, one of the things I really wanted to unpack today, and I was thinking about, okay, who would be the perfect guest to talk about? What does an influencer even mean now? Or what is the social influence industry? And it's so interesting to me because I feel like you've touched so many different sides of it, and you've been at totally different inflection points and I know that you're in a way, like even as we're talking about all of this, like you are still super active to a certain extent in social media. So what I wanted to ask you first and foremost is like, it, it, you know, again, the, the name of the podcast is tell me what you really think. What do you think is relevant in media in terms of like the intersection of social influencers today? I mean, do we actually think is being an influencer even relevant anymore? Like, it's like an interesting thing to think about because it was probably the most relevant cutting edge thing that was happening, I don't know, eight years ago. But do you think is social media as relevant?
0: I do think social media is is relevant. And I think social media is growing increasingly relevant in ways that can at once be gratifying or amusing to watch, but also extremely alarming to mm-hmm. watch. So I think that the industry of influence has just really evolved over time and has had many faces. When I was growing up, you know, my main influencers were Paris Hilton and Nicole Ritchie on The Simple Life. Mm -hmm. And those girls were probably rejected by a lot of our mainstream fashion magazines, for example, or looked down upon. But then would later come to build these like really interesting and different empires that are, by the way, still lasting to this day. They gave way to the Kardashians, who eventually gave way to the Instagram influencer, who eventually gave way to this kind of TikTok creator, which is a different permutation of influencer than we are used to seeing. Influencers for me today mean the people who are selling an aspirational lifestyle to their followers and a creator is someone who is making content that individuates themselves from the Mm -hmm. rest of what's happening on social media, but they are primarily stressing that they are a creator first. So they don't just take pretty pictures of themselves. They are making things that are entertaining or informational to consume. And I think that evolution is what we're witnessing right now with TikTok kind of taking Instagram out to lunch. And I think it's an interesting evolution for sure. Well,
1: and I knew this is why I knew you'd be perfect for this conversation because, you know, you were one of the OGs and and maybe you really weren't the OG to your point. It was Paris Hilton. And after that, it was, you know, the Kardashians. And also, like, I would say you're in this interesting, I don't know, in between because you're a creator and you've had a lot of influence. So I think by way that makes you an influencer. I will say for our audience that isn't as familiar with this industry, it is massive. It's, you know, about $16 billion in 2022 alone will be spent around and, you know, for influencers. And this is because we're in an environment where, according to recent research, and I'm not making this up because, you know, I do that. Sometimes more than 50 million people consider themselves creators, as you just said, or influencers. So I have to ask you. In this moment in time, do you think of yourself as an influencer? Would you define yourself as an influencer as I just did?
0: I have been so lucky to like work in a job that elevated me to the position of a public figure. Mm -hmm. And that was primarily, you know, really where I saw myself going and, and where I was really happy to exist in. After I left magazines and the pandemic hit, though, what I realized was the easiest way for me to make my living in a really uncertain economic time and the easiest way for me to pay off my student loans, including my newly acquired student loans at Harvard, would be through influence. I'm really grateful that I had great relationships with different brands who have contracted me to do incredible work with them. And listen, I mean, it's a great way to make money <laughs> if and you, you have the platform and the, the metrics.
1: Yeah, you get some good swag. Do you do you think this like, again, I feel like you can be objective, which is why I, I wanted to ask you these questions. But do you think this rise in influencers' has been good for us as a society? I mean, you know, there's there's a debate in terms of like, I don't know, almost like we're setting the wrong example for, you know, teenagers who think that, you know, their goal is to be Kim Kardashian when they grow up or, you know, they're so obsessed with having followers they're, they're not even in touch with who they really are. What, what is your opinion on that?
0: I think that one of the best things I learned at Harvard Divinity School was that to make a value judgment about something is probably more complex than a black or white answer. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that influencers are bad and I don't think that influence is bad. I also do not think it is good. And rather than pinning the tail on the influencers as kind of the, like, I don't know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I really think we should be pointing ourselves towards Uh, a more complex understanding of our relationships to technology and also how this new technology in social media, including our constant tethering to our phones, Mm -hmm. um, has influenced our psyches, has potentially corrupted our democracies, not just here in America, but Facebook and Meta have been involved with really insidious practices abroad that have resulted in in many ways in genocide abroad, and also misinformation, not to mention how we view our bodies and how we view ourselves, and also what technology is taking our attention away from. Literacy rates right now in America are actually falling among adults, which is startling, right? If we're spending all of our time in technology and immersed in technology, where Where is that time spent coming from? Is that coming from time spent with our families, with our friends, with meeting strangers, with being able to engage in casual conversation when we're walking down the street? Or is it time spent away from books or from studies, right? And so I think those things are stuff that a lot of us are reckoning with in really troubling ways right now. And it deserves a a, a really, really hard look.
1: Yeah. And I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's like saying, you know, Listen, are there good people and are there bad people? I mean, yes, there are some people that are, you know, total dickheads and there's some people that are not. And the truth is, is that what I think technology has enabled is two things, a platform for all. So, you know, we're going to hear all the voices, which, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's this is a society mm-hmm. we live in. But to your point, I think technology has enabled a behavior that is in some ways changing, you know, the way that not only we're, we're, taking in information, but by way, we're actually distributing information, right? And I think that TikTok is a whole other level, by the way. Yes. Are you, listen, I, I follow you on Insta and, you know, I follow your stories and I follow you on Twitter. You have a lot to say. Are you on TikTok?
0: So my husband is on TikTok. He has over a million followers there. He's a public health expert. He's on Good Morning America. He's also an ER doctor. He's also hot. And so he's also hot. But yes. Be thank, honest. Thank, thank Tell God the for truth. that. So he is really successful in TikTok, and I think he's using that platform, you know, for good. And I can tell that his the work that he's doing there is making an impact. He is more recognized when we walk down the street from TikTok than he is from Good Morning America. So I think that should just go to show you, like, yeah. the, you know, anecdotally, the impact that TikTok has. On the flip side, though, you know, TikTok just... Like, I think last year settled like almost an $100 million lawsuit that alleged that it was violating biometric information privacy rules in Illinois, right? So what we don't necessarily know about our usage on TikTok Mm. is that the app is storing our biometric data, which means it's reading our faces and our voices. Don't like that. And it does store our face prints and our voice prints is what they call it. And they claim that they are not harvesting this very identifying data of ours, which is deeply private (laughs) for insidious usage. But also we do know that TikTok is owned, is is a Chinese company, right? And so I think that there is quite a, a great deal for us to explore. Like TikTok is often looked at as kind of our savior from Facebook or Instagram. Okay. You know, but really like when we dig into this stuff, you guys, it's like they're following very similar, really predatory business practices that are violating or potentially manipulating our privacy and any tech company that is using an algorithm You know, we have to understand that tech algorithms are based off of human emotionality. So, any tech algorithm, therefore, is particularly susceptible to spreading misinformation, right? Or to exploiting things like rage or anger or sadness or trauma. And so, our time spent on these platforms and our relationship to these platforms really needs to be closely monitored. So that we are understanding what they are doing to our brains and what they're doing to our interactions with other people. It feels a little bit like
1: boiling the ocean though, right? Because it's like we're saying all of this, but like, I don't know. I have three young kids, as you know. Mm -hmm. And and we have like a no social media rule right now just because I don't think that they can appreciate or understand that this is – You know, people say, like, are you using social media or is it using you? Right? That's right. And I think for young kids, by the way, I think I came up with that. I'm not sure if other people say it. But I think it's a good one. Isn't it good? I think it's absolutely true. And it scares me because I'm like, you know, it 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 almost feels like the idea of letting my son just like like walk out into New York City alone, you know, and it's it's very exposing. You don't know what the damage is gonna be, but at the same time, you're like But this is also the world, you know what I mean? And so I can't, like, shelter them from social media forever, and I don't think that is the goal either. But to your point, there's all these things that we still don't know. It seems like it's trying to understand, like, how great the COVID vaccine is or not. Like, nobody really knows for sure, but we know it's, like, a part of our everyday. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back. This is Tell Me What You Really Think with Phil Picardi.
0: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ali is here to help. Ali invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin. Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So there was this NPR segment recently that I found really interesting. So when we worked at Teen Vogue, we were covering social media, privacy, technology, Mm -hmm. and their relationships to girls' lives. So much so that Edward Snowden shared a Teen Vogue article at one point, which was bizarre. But it was important for us to educate our readers, especially Mm -hmm. in the wake of a Donald Trump presidency, as you may have seen with the Roe v. Wade stuff, Mm -hmm. right? that girls need to be very cautious about what they are putting on the internet or what kind of data they are giving to social media platforms or apps on their phone. Case in point, Meta just provided prosecutors with private messages about abortion in a case against a 17-year-old. They turned over her messages to the government, right? So that's kind of something we saw coming Mm. and something that activists, especially feminist activists in the tech space, were warning us about and we were listening. When we were at the Teen Vogue Summit, and the Parkland survivors were with us on stage. So Emma Gonzalez, Sarah Chadwick, uh, Jacqueline Corrine. We also had gun rights activists who were teenagers from you know different states across the country who were involved in in gun rights. I remember a mother came up to me and said, "Can we please do this, but for boys?" Hmm. And I didn't really know how to answer her. You know, I'm a man, right? So I was like, it makes sense that, you know, we would want this for our boys. I have never seen moms more concerned about the future for their boys. This is across racial lines, across sexual orientations, across, you know, all of it. But mothers are really concerned about the habits of young boys, how young boys are being raised in this society, and what kinds of messages they are receiving, When we dug into the kind of school shooter manifestos that we've seen from a lot of mass shootings, what we've seen in those manifestos is a lot of those shooters were putting internet memes into their manifestos. Mm. They were being radicalized by internet language, which is like making funny memes or funny videos or short form commentary or certain podcasts or certain people on Reddit or certain people on 4chan, which are harder for parents to monitor on their boy screens. These young men were being radicalized in these places. They were being told that their ostracization was a result of women taking over, or people of color taking yeah. over, whatever it was. And that ultimately compelled these boys to massive acts of atrocious violence. So just like you said, you know, just say no is not really an option for anyone, Right. Right. And abstinence-only education does not work with sex. Just say no did not work with drug education or drug usage. And so social media for me is the same thing. We need to approach this with a, we know that you're going to use it. We know that it's going to be a part of your life, but here's what we want you to be aware of. And here's where I want you to come and bring your phone to mom. If If you think that you're seeing something that is not nice, if you hear language that is telling you to hate black people, if you hear language that is talking about guns, come talk to me about it. If you can't talk to me about it, call so and so, right? Have a conversation with this person is this something that you can bring up in therapy if you if you have the means or resources to mm-hmm. put your child in therapy? But the exposure, especially, that young boys are are being faced with, this is a lot less explored than the perhaps body image stuff that we talk about with young girls and their images and their relationships to social media, which I'm not saying is any less insidious. I'm just saying one of these things gets media attention and one of these things yeah. tends to not get media attention. I
1: think that's it's, a really it's good point. It's very pernicious. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, as a parent, I need to train them to understand how to use it, because I do think that there are some wonderful things that come from social media, how you build a community, how you can make friends, how you can learn. But it's also hard to understand, I think, for kids. I think when they read something, they think it's fact. Mm -hmm. And I think we have that same issue with, like, you know, the news organizations, right? You, You hear something on Fox News. If you were growing up at a Fox News house, you think that's 100% fact, or if you grew up in a CNN house, you think that's absolute fact. And so I think we're living in a world right now where information is all over the place. And I think for teens, especially if you think about social media, they're like elastic. Anything they hear, they almost tend to believe, not because they're not capable of making decisions, but because they're hearing these things for the first time. They don't have any context. But anyways, what I also worry about, and we're living in a time in which, and I've had a couple of other um, episodes where we've talked about cancel culture cancel people and we see this with teens getting bullied mm-hmm. and we've also seen this with you know people in pretty high profile roles and you know creativity i think has taken a real hit because of that i think people are really afraid to say anything provocative or show anything provocative or doing anything provocative because they're afraid they're going to get actually canceled
0: so okay I think that there is a distinction between cancellation and accountability. And so I want to start here Mm -hmm. because right now, you know, where we've gone with cancel culture is that it, it is synonymous with kind of wokeism, which is that it's kind of become this derogatory term that is mostly applied to people on the left and anyone who absolves an identity that the people on the right believe to be of the left, which would be gay or trans or queer or black or let's see next right so they say that you know we are trying to cancel people and rid them of the public square no one can ever be forgiven etc cetera, etc cetera. because cancel culture as a term has been co-opted so much by fox news pundits and people on the far right i have completely absolved myself of using the term at all whatsoever Because I don't find it to be helpful Mm -hmm. in like furthering and engaging discourse. The difference between cancellation, which is the idea that people should just be completely removed from society and accountability is really important. Like you said, cancel culture has led to major people in prominent positions who held institutional power being removed from their positions. Mm -hmm. We could name the countless men who were held accountable finally during the Me Too movement as quote unquote victims of cancel culture. But that is absolutely not an apt way to talk about what those men did, who they harmed, for how many years they harmed, and the fact that they deserve to face repercussions, especially professionally and in the public sphere, for the harm that they caused. The other thing, this kind of difference between cancellation and accountability, is that a lot of white people have shielded themselves behind this idea that there is a cancel culture, which is why they don't need to be accountable to anyone other than other white people, right? And so this is another troubling thing is that when matters of race or gender identity and bigotry of all forms comes into play people are now really quick to pull the cancel culture card or that they deserve to get paid the same amount they were getting paid before and have the same access to opportunity that they had before regardless of the fact that they never offered a full and clear apology for the kinds of harm that they committed. So I'm not saying that all instances that we have of cancel culture fall under those rubrics but I'm just saying I think it's always helpful to ask ourselves, is this someone being held accountable or is this someone being, quote unquote, canceled? And, and, you know, what is the difference between those two things? There's a really important intervention that's happening right now in this kind of sphere Mm -hmm. because it is acknowledging that there is a very intense environment of purity happening that is almost impossible for anyone to live up to. And the writer P.E. Moskowitz on their excellent substack called Mental Health, but health is spelled hell, So they wrote that this is a sign of a larger phenomenon, that people have figured out how to absolve themselves of all responsibility for their lives while simultaneously presenting themselves as authorities over other peoples. This has been called many things, cancel culture, identity politics. And instead, P.E. Moskowitz calls it secular puritanism, a quasi-religion in which your adherence to rules and norms endows you with the moral authority over others, a religion in which any misstep from these rules and norms is viciously punished. And unfortunately, it has become endemic, infecting every space of discourse and ensuring that actual progress, actual mutual understanding between people and cultures never happens. We have sacrificed a focused material betterment for moral purity. And so that, for me, is really where I land. It speaks to this really mm-hmm. binary form of thinking. There is black and there is white. There is good and there is bad. There is no room for in-between. There is no room for missteps. And that, to me, is what is the hindrance of creativity or provocation or the desire to push things forward, right? If you're so afraid of creating something that's going to instigate feelings or instigate emotion, it can be misunderstood, it can be misinterpreted, and it can be turned against you. And, and let's that not is forget I this. definitely
1: I have to say, just sorry to cut you off there, but I was even thinking about even what we're doing, and when I say we, I'm about to talk about Beyonce, so it's not me, but like, Beyonce like just edited a song after it was already released, right? Yep. I mean, it's not even just like afraid to create. It's like actually what's happening, forget about what you may think about what needed to be edited, but like we're living in a time where that's actually happening now. Like, oh, you guys didn't like this? Like, I'm going to go and press delete on that part of the song. I'm going to re-edit it now. And I just wonder, like, whether you have strong feelings about that or not. Like, it's so interesting to me that that we're living in a time when we're getting out an eraser and we're changing things because of community opinion. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's fascinating.
0: Well, in the case of the Beyoncé edit, that was also an edit that Lizzo made. And I think it's, again, see, like, that to me is not canceling. To me, that was Beyoncé and Lizzo being willing to say, I'm willing to be held accountable by the disability community who says that using the word spaz is ableist and is not cool. And like, we worked really hard to educate people around not using that word. And then here are two of the biggest female entertainers of our time using that word in a really cavalier way when we find it bigoted, we find it harmful. And Beyonce and Lizzo were merely saying, okay, we didn't know that.
1: But I mean, let's just say that that's true. And that's, by the way, a great example, right? But I think that, If you think about the before anything is made or created, all the things that are going through anyone's head coming back into a situation that they're like, you know what, I was going to produce this song, but now I'm not going to produce this song because I'm just afraid. I've gone through it with a fine-tooth comb, and I don't think anything is going to offend anybody, but it just might, so I'm just not going to do it, right? So you just wonder, again, like with the spectrum— and I didn't want to go down this like Beyonce, Lizzo rabbit hole, though I should, because my wife loves the album so much; it's ridiculous. But I'm just saying, like, you know what I mean? It's just there is a spectrum of of what we're not doing, like what creators are not creating, because they're so afraid. Even if they weren't going to make a mistake, and how do we even define mistake? And and how are we willing to kind of give people a little bit of range and flex? to make a misstep. And to your point, I think this was a great example of Lizzo and Beyonce acknowledging something that, that they just didn't realize. But at the same time, it's just an interesting time in which people are so afraid of that being them and ending up in a situation that they could be held accountable for.
0: Yeah. And and, and to me, you know, I looked at the Beyonce edit, the Swift edit of it, the like conversation with her team and with her label as saying, like, I don't want to be perceived as being ableist or ignoring disabled people in my work. And so now I'm sure that Parkwood and Beyonce are going to embed sensitivity consultants or reads that are are going to make sure that that mistake never happens again. And like, that is an incredible feat, I think. In the disability community that I saw, everyone was like, thanks. Yeah. Moving on. Let's enjoy the album. No. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, <laughs> Renaissance is canceled. Stop listening to Renaissance. Like, that stuff never happened. But that is the narrative that Fox News made about it, right? That is the narrative that the right-wingers made about it. Oh, now they're coming for Beyonce. Right. And it was like, that was never the case. No, and I totally so, agree with that. 100%. Are there cases like that? Like, of course. Yeah, but... The thing about people being afraid to create, I get it. You know, I don't want people being afraid to speak up just because they are afraid that they're going to be called out. And I was just in classrooms, right, on a college campus. So I saw this directly. I saw people were afraid to speak or were nervous that if they spoke, their words were going to be misinterpreted or or they would face kind of backlash for what they said. That kind of culture, like that hostility, I think mm-hmm. we need to remove from the equation. And I do think it is important to address. I also encourage those folks too. like, again, for me, a lot of this comes down to reframing. It's like, are you afraid to speak because you're afraid to say the wrong thing? Or are you afraid to speak because you're afraid to hurt someone? Right. Like, where does the fear come from? Because if you're afraid to hurt someone, then your heart's in the right place, you know. And maybe if you're afraid to hurt someone, maybe there's more work you can be doing to educate yourself about that specific group of people's positionality before you open your mouth and say something about them.
1: But there is like what's happening on Twitter. And I think the reality is a lot of so, again, you have like examples in which people do need to be called out. And it's great that people are being called out. And then you have other examples where there's like literally like. We call them swamp trollers of people that are—they just get joy out of getting attention, out of, like, taking people down. Yes. Um, and I think that's creating—you know, I think forget about, like, what that is doing in terms of destroying and and creating, you know, a lot of self-confidence for our youth, for whatever it's worth. But also it's, like, it's hideous. It's, like, it's—it it is not what the platform I know was originally intended to be for— but it's become a huge part of the experience. And so you just like wonder, as much as people are putting out there, I think people are actually just afraid of getting taken down. And so they're, they've are they stopped putting things out there to a certain extent, even if they're just trying to do good in the world. And so I'm just curious, like, do you think that we're moving in a direction with social media, whether that's Twitter or Insta or TikTok, in which is this even controllable? Is this a part of our society and our culture right now? Do you think we're going to ease up a little bit or do you think this is just reality of social media and and what it means to be connected
0: to all these people? Well, I think that the reality part is the trouble, right? Like I always tell people Twitter is not real life. So if you start to think that the way that people think on Twitter is real life, then you need to log off of Twitter. Mm -hmm. If you start to think that Instagram is real life, like in that everyone has a six pack and a massive butt and, you know, everyone's going on vacations to Capri every weekend, you need to log off of Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Like, log off. If you think social media is real life, you got to log off. And I think that's kind of part of the problem is that we interact so much and primarily with each other via social media and not via real life, not even just via phone calls anymore. Mm -hmm. We're DMing each other on these platforms. We're always existing within these ecosystems of these platforms that the way we communicate on these platforms is becoming the way we communicate in real life. That's the problem. Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, as we go down this rabbit hole. I think my audience is probably now seeing exactly why I thought you would be an interesting partner to talk to about this topic. The name of this podcast is called Tell Me What You Really Think. So before we wrap, and yes, I want to thank you and all that good stuff. We're going to do a little (laughs) bit of a a rapid fire in which I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And you're going to tell me what you really think. But you have to, like, be really honest and you have to, like, just off the cuff. So, like, no, like, real deep thinking and don't drag on for too long, okay? Oh, so, God.
0: That's not my specialty. Okay.
1: Okay. But, like, just, you know, just go with it. So, tell me what you really think. Um, what gets you up in the morning?
0: Coffee or my cats.
1: Good answer. What keeps you up at night?
0: Climate change.
1: Really? Yes. I'm terrified. God. <laughs> if you could give 12-year-old Phil one piece of advice, what would it be?
0: Oh my God. I think I would tell him keep up with the piano lessons. It's like one of my greatest regrets that I don't really? play an instrument. You know,
1: I play yeah, piano for yeah. a long time. So yeah, it's it's good. Wow. At parties.
0: I'm jealous. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's, it's good. good at
1: parties, right? Yeah, no, I can and I, you know, I'll I'll show you next time I see you that I can I can actually play. Teen Vogue or Vogue?
0: Teen Vogue. Come on.
1: Love it. Saint Sorry, an- Anna. I mean, she listen, it's all, so it doesn't matter. St. Anthony or the Dalai Lama.
0: Oh, God. I mean, I would have to pick St. Anthony. My grandmother always prayed to him. I have brothers and cousins named for him. Tony, we're Italian. What can I say?
1: Twitter or Insta.
0: Oh, God. Can I say neither? No. No?
1: I'm the, the rules. Okay. Pick I
0: one. feel safer on Instagram.
1: You feel safer. Okay. L.A. or New York?
0: L.A. I'm Hate sorry. You. I, love, so I rude. love New York. It will always be my home, mm-hmm. but I am so happy to be calling L.A. home at this moment in time. And I'm currently looking out at the ocean I'm not inviting you talk. back
1: Phil I cannot thank you enough for taking the time and being so insightful today You know we, we really did unpack a lot of different things you know yeah. I think you're incredible and I know our listeners are going to gain a ton of insight out of this conversation love you great to have you on the show
0: love you thank you, you Pam
1: alright bye bye tell me what you really think is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment I'm Pam Druckerman.